loving Father in heaven, how great we are, grateful we are to you for the gift of life, the gift of your son Jesus. This whole seminar series is about him. It's about the creator as seen through creation. And today we will be looking at your character. It's a powerful, powerful message. And I just pray that you'll just hide us behind the cross, that the information that we share will encourage people, strengthen their faith, and show them the plan of salvation in a way perhaps they've never seen before. We leave that in your hands. We just trust each one here today to your presence. We ask that your Holy Spirit be with us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. My husband's actually going to be doing most of the series. That My mother was diagnosed with cancer in December, so I've been spending a lot of time going back and forth to Arizona. So when they wanted to know about um, speakers, I just knew I didn't really have the time, but my husband said that he would. But he ran out of time. He said, would you take one of the talks? <laughs> so I have one Thursday. So Thursday, I'm actually going to be going through. So today, we're going to do the glory of light. Tomorrow, we're doing sound. And then Wednesday will be parable of the plants. And then Thursday is going to be the life cycle of a butterfly and the spiritual lessons learned in that. By that afternoon or that time slot, I think we'll be able to talk about how to get your children in nature and involved to come up with some of these things. And then the last one, if you're going to miss any of them, don't miss the one Friday. That is my favorite, is the Gospel in the Stars, and it's just my absolute favorite. So anyway, a lot of the stuff that we're presenting actually came about 25 years ago when I was homeschooling, or us, I should say, homeschooling. Um, my husband did as much as he could since he had a full-time job. But if I couldn't get something across, my husband, especially science, he loved experiments, and he'd get the oranges out and the apples, and he'd show all the constellations, whatever he had to show, the sun and the moon, you know, he just, he was really good at getting some of those concepts across. So this is where it actually came from. We're studying um, in our homeschool about the electromagnetic spectrum. And at the same time, I was doing my devotions, and I read God is light, and I had this thought in my mind, God is light. Well, that's the electromagnetic spectrum. I wonder if God's character can actually be shown in that spectrum. That's where it started. And then from there, we had a five-day presentation. We used to do week of prayers. And this is condensing that five days into an hour, so you're not going to get a whole lot of it. So I want to share with you, we were sitting together last night trying to decide. We had to take out some. It was just too many slides. So I just want to know in your handout, the part that's actually on the rainbow, which will be this one, and the colors of the rainbow, I'm sorry, will not be covered during this presentation. We decided it was just way too much material, but it's in there, and maybe another time we can do that. It is fascinating material, but you'll have enough to go away with that you will really be blessed. After the revelation that God's truth can be seen in nature, our science curriculum took on a whole different dimension. The foundation of our science curriculum ended up being centered around God, his creation, and the spiritual lessons that he wanted to teach us. And so that's what we're going to be sharing right now, is how to take God's character and see it in the light spectrum. So I'm going to actually turn it over to my husband, and I'm only going to be a backup for him. Okay. One of the things that um, I want to share right at the beginning there's a lot of material here, so we're going to be moving at the speed of thought, which is faster than the speed of light. 
So put on your seatbelts and stay with me because there's a lot of material to cover. If you have questions, we're going to hopefully have enough time at the end to answer questions, so I'm not going to entertain questions throughout the presentation. So if something doesn't make sense, write it down, and we'll cover it as we get toward the end. Trying to find out where you left off here. Okay. So nature is really God's first book. It was given to man long before the Bible, but after sin, the character of God was misrepresented, and due to sin, nature no longer fully revealed his character. Thus, the word of God was given that we may see clearly the plan of salvation. Nevertheless, Nature still holds great truths for us if we will only search for them. So I don't have a picture of what the earth looked like before creation. Well, this is the moon. So what was the earth like at the beginning of day one of creation week? There were no singing birds. There were no colorful flowers. No laughing children. Just cold, silent, lifeless darkness. Not the kind of place that any sensible person would want to be, yet someone was there. God was there. And the moment that he came on the scene, the darkness fled away. On all the other days of creation week, God created or made something. But on the first day, the Bible says that he simply let the light shine. It was as if he was pulling back the covers over a newly formed world so he could bask in the light of his love. So where did the light come from? It was from the presence of God. Well, how do we know this? John the Revelator saw a vision of the earth made new, and here is what he was shown. And there shall be no light, no night there, and they shall have no need of a candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light. So a dictionary defines light as luminous, radiant, or electromagnetic energy. Does anybody know what this equation is? Einstein's special theory of relativity equals mc squared. We're not going to go into that. Einstein was a creationist. He believed in the God of creation. He was actually a Jewish man, from what I remember. But he was a creationist, and he believed in a literal six-day creation week. So a dictionary defines light as luminous, radiant, or electromagnetic energy. Therefore, we may conclude that God possesses energy in the same sense that God possesses love. It is one of his many attributes. God, who is an intelligent, powerful being, reveals much about the spiritual and physical aspects of his character through the attributes of light. To get a picture of God's character, it would be to our benefit to look more closely at this light. So if you're familiar at all with the electromagnetic spectrum, this is the electromagnetic spectrum as much as we know it today. All we see is visible light, that little narrow band in the middle with all the colors of the rainbow. John informs us that... God is light, 
and in him is no darkness at all. So if we were to look at the night sky before we go there, I missed something here. Oh, how the minds of man have, have attempted to understand that simple yet profound statement, God is light in him is no darkness at all. We were really trying to understand this when we were doing our homeschooling. What does it mean that in him is no darkness at all? So this is what we found. If you were to look at the night sky, and we'll be talking more about the night sky on Friday when we talk about the gospel and the stars. But if you were to look at the night sky with your eyes, they could see in all the various wavelengths of light, not just visible light, you would find out that the night sky is as bright as the, as the noonday sun. This is what we see when we look at the sky in various different wavelengths. So, Psalms 139 verse 12 says, Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. So to God, night day doesn't make any difference. Here's the reason why. If you could look at the night sky in radio waves, in that frequency of light, the night sky would be lit up bright like the daylight in radio waves. That's a picture taken from the Astronomical Society of the Pacific Telescope. I think it's in Hawaii. I'm not 100% sure. But that was the, the night sky taken in radio waves. This is the night sky taken in microwaves. It's lit up just like daylight. In infrared, in ultraviolet, in x-ray, and in gamma waves. The night sky is lit up just like the daylight. You can't see it because your eyes only see the visible light spectrum. God sees all the light spectrum. So there's far more to light than meets the eye. The electromagnetic spectrum is how scientists refer to light in all of its various wavelengths. Starting at one end of the spectrum, we find radio waves. And then moving on up the spectrum, we get to cosmic rays on the far end. Radio waves travel through space like the ripples in a pond after a stone is dropped in the water. They spread out to cover vast distances very fast. Some radio waves are thousands of miles long. A radio signal broadcast from a transmitter at one location can be received by thousands of people at virtually the same time. These radio waves penetrate into our houses, our offices, and our schools to reach us with the message that they carry. God is like this. King David knew that there was not a place that he could go that God was not there. So what King David said is, where shall I go from thy spirit? Where shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. You know, God knows that we are lost in sin. And like radio waves, he searches for us wherever we are to find us. And when we pray, 
we're in a sense sending a two-way radio message to God. Heaven and earth are drawn close together by prayer. One of the parts of the five-day week of prayer that we did on the glory of light was all on prayer, showing how radio waves tie in with prayer. So frequency and energy increase as we move up the spectrum. We next come to TV waves, and TV waves can carry more information because they're a higher energy level, they're higher frequency, so they can carry more information than just sound, which radio can carry. Eventually, we encounter microwaves, much shorter in wavelength than radio waves. They can only be transmitted by line of sight. They're reflected by metal. One interesting property of microwaves is, that they, is how they affect living tissue. They're not as penetrating as radio waves, but due to their much higher frequency, they vibrate molecules of organic matter from the inside out. The vibrations cause the object to heat up, making them very dangerous, and that's the way a microwave oven works, because of the higher frequency. Infrared is the next form of electromagnetic energy that we encounter. In the early 1800s, Sir William Herschel, an English astronomer, was measuring the temperature of sunlight that he had separated with a prism as he moved a thermometer from violet toward red, he noticed that the temperature increased. Continuing past red, so I'd be moving, he put his thermometer down here, and he moved the thermometer up, and when he got to red, the temperature was still going up as he went beyond red, because he was in the ultraviolet part of the spectrum. He couldn't see it, but he knew something was there because the thermometer was picking it up. What he had discovered, obviously, was infrared light or heat. Now, infrared light provides us with heat to keep us warm, cook our food, iron our clothes, it's the warmth of the sun that causes evaporation of water that is so necessary for the water cycle. We'll be talking more about the water cycle on Wednesday when we talk about the plants. Infrared is reflected by shiny metal surfaces, particularly gold and light-colored objects. This is why satellites are covered with gold foil to reflect the heat of the sun. One other interesting property about Infrared, our God is a consuming fire. He has a lot of heat. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. Many Bible passages show that God and heat are closely connected together. Malachi 3, 2, and 3 is an example. Who may abide in the day of his coming and who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. So God is a God of mercy. And he often increases the heat, those fires of affliction, to purge us of the sins that separate us from him. You know, the refiner of silver, when he heats up that silver in his little crucible, he's watching the silver 
and the, the impurities come to the surface and he skims the impurities off and then he heats it up some more. And he's watching the temperature very, very carefully because he doesn't want to destroy the silver. He just wants the impurities out. Do you know how he knows when the silver is completely refined? Anybody know? He sees his reflection. That's right. So when he can look in the silver and see his reflection, he knows it's done. And we're going to talk more about that here in just a little while. So as we continue to move on up the spectrum, we move into ultraviolet light or UV. UV has some wonderful benefits. Due to the higher energy, many impurities not visible under normal white light can be made to glow when exposed to UV light. This process is called fluorescence. This property of UV light can be very beneficial in industry when looking for impurities in manufactured products. It is interesting that UV light causes objects with certain impurities to glow or fluoresce. For example, scorpions glow bright light under UV light because of the impurities that are in them. God is willing to examine us for impurities of sin. If we, like King David, will ask him to search me, O God, and know my heart, Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalms 139, 23, and 24. UV has some other properties that aid in healing and purification. UV kills bacteria, lowers blood pressure and cholesterol. That's why we need to get sunlight. It decreases blood sugar, increases energy and endurance and muscular strength. UV also increases the body's resistance to disease by increasing the white blood count. It increases the oxygen-carrying capacity of blood, and it helps to relieve stress. So Malachi tells us, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. So getting adequate sunshine is one of God's fundamental eight laws of health. It is interesting that the previous verse to this one, Malachi chapter 4, 1, says that the same sun of righteousness that brings healing to the saints burns up the wicked. It's a well-known fact that a high-fat diet increases the risk of skin cancer through exposure to sunlight. We're going to talk more about this concept in just a little bit. Now here's something interesting about UV light. Those are the exact same flower, the one on the left, taken in visible light. It's pretty. The one on the right is taken in ultraviolet light. Now why do you suppose God does that? Does anybody have any idea? Yes, in the back. Can you speak up? The insects, yes. Okay, the insects zoom into that. It's like a bullseye to them. Now, get an evolutionist to explain this, if you would. Why? We normally see yellow, but an insect sees that bullseye. What's in the middle of the bullseye? 
the pollen and the nectar. That's what the insect is looking for. So that's what God did for the animals. For the, because he takes care of all of his creatures, even the simplest little creatures. So God puts little targets, landing strips, landing lights in the flowers. Look at this one. This is the same flower, one in normal light, one in ultraviolet light. The little insect sees that, and those are like landing lights. They're like a runway to him. He just zooms right into the center of that flower. Here's another one. Same flower, visible light. Down here is long wave ultraviolet. The brighter one in the middle is short wave ultraviolet. It's much more dangerous to us. That's what causes problems for your eyes. That's why people that wear sunglasses wear UV blockers. That is the guy right there. But a bug, an insect, loves that because he zooms right in there because that's what he's after. It's the pollen and the nectar. Here's another one. And one more. So as we continue to move on up the spectrum, we leave UV, which works primarily on the surface, and move into X-rays, gamma rays, and cosmic rays. These act differently than lower frequencies of the electromagnetic spectrum. X-rays penetrate to the bones of a person. Too much exposure to X-rays harmful to the body. They're blocked by heavy metal and solid objects like concrete. Gamma rays penetrate within the bones. They are particles of energy from nuclei of atoms that are smashed as a result of the smashing of those atomic nuclei. They're also extremely dangerous to us. That's one of the problems that they have with the astronauts on the International Space Station. They're constantly being bombarded by gamma rays. And on February the 12th, the second of this year, February 2, 2017, there was a gamma ray burst detected by the satellite SWIFT from an object many, many billions of years, light years away. And that burst of gamma ray energy was brighter than a million suns like ours. That one burst. Cosmic rays have the highest energy and are the most penetrating of the electromagnetic spectrum, even down to the atomic level. Cosmic rays don't travel like waves, but act as particles. And again, this shows how God works. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and to the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So x-rays stop at the joints and the marrow, right? At the bones. But God's process of looking at us goes into our thoughts, just like gamma rays can penetrate. So the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. David must have known how God can work to change us on the inside, for he asked God to create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Psalms 51, verse 10. To be totally purified by the light of God, we must be willing to remain in the light of his love, we must not stay in the darkness. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Ephesians 5, verse 8. One other text here. 
If we say that we have fellowship with him and call ourselves Christians, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. We're going to come back to this in a little while. So even though it is always around us, there is one part of the electromagnetic spectrum that we can see. And that is right between infrared and visible light. The only visible manifestation of God that man has ever seen is Jesus Christ. And as what my wife mentioned, we had, had a presentation at one time in one of our talks that was all on the rainbow. All the colors of the rainbow. It's an hour-long presentation all by itself. So Isaac Newton was one of the first modern scientists to investigate the nature of light and color. By placing a prism in a light beam, he found that this white light could be separated into colors. Colors begin with red, which is the longest frequency of visible light, and proceeds with orange, yellow, green, cyan, or blue-green, blue, indigo, and violet. Scientists now know that white light is made up of three main colors of light, red, green, and blue. Now stay with me. We're not talking here about pigment. This is not crayons. This is light beams. We'll go back to the pigment in a little bit. But red, green, and blue are the primary colors of light. And back in the days of the old-style electron tube color televisions, there were three beams of light in a TV picture tube. One was red, one was blue, one was green. And when they all focused together on one phosphor dot, they got white light right here in the middle. So red, blue, and green combined together to make white light. And if we have time later on, I've got a little experiment we'll play with, and I'll show you how that works, because we can make that happen with three flashlights with filters on them. So this is, an, this is what is called the additive properties of light. They add together to make white light. That's why, that's why Isaac Newton, when he, put that, when he put a prism in the window and it split white light, he got all the colors of the rainbow. So he was undoing what God does with his light presence. And we'll come back to this. So the world often associates colors with character. If someone is blue, they would be considered despondent or unhappy or sad or glum or gloomy or depressed. A cowardly person is often called yellow. Red is associated sometimes with anger, while green is referred to as jealous or very envious, such as green with envy. I like that. Well, does the Bible associate primary colors of light with character? Do they have any correlation to the character of God? So we're going to look at red first. 
Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they shall be as wool. So in this verse, red is associated with what? With sin. In 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 22, it says, And they rose up early in the morning, and the sun shone upon the water, and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. So here the color red is associated with blood. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 14, it says, So what is the blood? It's the life of the flesh. The blood of it, for the life thereof, the life of all flesh, is the blood. So this verse makes it clear that blood is what gives life. So is there anything in the life of Christ that is associated with sins, blood, and life? Jesus said, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Colossians 1.14, Paul tells us, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. John 6, 53 and 54. So Jesus is telling us here that his blood is our life. However, is there any sacrifice that we need to make? Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, 24, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him do what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So what we learn from light is that red is self-sacrificing love. The next color of the three primary colors of light is green. And we're going to find out that green equates to faith. Now, faith plays a key role in the Christian's experience. It's also the catalyst that takes the principles of righteousness and truth into our lives so that we may experience the fruit of the Spirit. Blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see heat when it cometh but her leaf shall be green. We're going to talk about green on Wednesday when we talk about the parable of the plant. And shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. So here, the leaf shall be green. Now Ellen White had a dream and in that dream, she wanted to see Jesus. And an angel, her guide, was leading her there. 
She says, as I commenced to ascend the steps, he cautioned me to keep my eyes fixed upward. At the end of the vision, her guide handed her a green cord coiled closely up, and he cautioned me not to let it remain coiled for any length of time, lest it should become knotted and difficult to straighten. The green cord represented faith to my mind. That's in Early Writings, page 81. So spiritually, we are told that we all have been given a measure of faith. Whether you're an infidel, an atheist, or a Christian, a Muslim, a Hindu, or a Buddhist, or a Jew, or any other, every human being has been given a measure of faith. Faith is a powerful principle in the life of a Christian. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith, 1 John 5, 4. Faith is a vital part of our life because through it we overcome the world. God has given to every man a measure of faith. Since he gives only a small measure, it is only increased as it is put into practice. Because we want to strengthen our faith in Christ, let us see how we can develop it and put it into practice. Faith is not believing in nothing. It is believing in evidence or proof of something. Faith is a substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. The third color, third primary color of light is Blue. And we understand blue to have to do with obedience. Numbers chapter 15, verse 38 and 39, we read, Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe that you may look upon it and remember all the what? All the commandments of the Lord and do what? And do them and keep them. This is really speaking about Jesus, but David spoke this by inspiration. In Psalms chapter 40, verse 8, he says, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. Jesus said in John 4, 34, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. In Desire of Ages, page 125, we're told that Jesus refused to go outside the path of obedience. In John 15, verse 10, it says, If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. So is there a corresponding obedience that God requires of us? Well, Jesus tells us in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And the wise man tells us in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. 1 John 2, verse 3 says, Hereby we do know 
that we know him if we keep his commandments. And finally, Revelation 22.14 says, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. So, we see that the primary character of God can be summarized by the primary colors of his light. Red equals self-sacrificing love. Green equals faith. And blue equals obedience. And the three of those colors, when they combine together, make white light. Well, why do we even bother with white light? What's the significance of that? The prophet Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, something fascinating. The Bible tells us about the color of the garment that God wears. He says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit. Who's the Ancient of Days? God the Father, whose garment was white as snow. Daniel 7, verse 9. David tells us in Psalms 104, verse 1 and 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, thou art very great, thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who covereth thyself with light as with a garment. So not only are his garments white, but they consist of white light. Speaking about Jesus, it says that his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. This was Mark telling us in Mark chapter 9 what Jesus looked like on the Mount of Transfiguration. But Matthew has a little different twist on this same occurrence. Matthew tells us, that Jesus was transfigured before them. My wife's going to be talking about that word transfigured on Thursday when we talk about the butterfly. His face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as what? The light. So that brings us to us. So the question is, are we wearing filthy rags or should we be wearing white raiment? And there was a time that man also wore that same exact white robe of light that God wore. The robe was a symbol of their spiritual garments of heavenly innocence. Genesis 2.25 states that they were both naked and were not ashamed. Apparently, they, they did not know that they didn't have on physical clothing. The white light of God, his self-sacrificing love, faith, and obedience was their clothing. So when God's character shines on a person without sin, they perfectly reflect his character. So Adam and Eve, in their innocence, reflected the white light of the character of God. And Ellen White tells us in Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1, page 25, the sinless pair wore no artificial garments. They were clothed with a covering of light and glory, such as the angels wear. While they lived in obedience to God, this circle of light enshrouded them. 
also tells us in the book Christ Object Lessons, page 310 and 311, the white robe of innocence was worn by our first parents when they were placed by God in Holy Eden. Excuse me for a moment. All the strength of their affection was given to their Heavenly Father. A beautiful soft light, the light of God, enshrouded the holy pair. This robe of light was a symbol of their spiritual garments of heavenly innocence. Had they remained true to God, it would ever have continued to enshroud them. But when sin entered, they severed their connection with God, and the light that had encircled them departed. Christ's object lessons 3.10 and 3.11. So this is what the white robe of light looks like, and it's summarized here. Faith that works by love is the robe that Christ wore. So here you can see faith, the green, works, the blue of obedience, and his self-sacrificing love, red. That was the robe that Christ wore. That was the robe that Adam and Eve wore in the Garden of Eden. And while they remained faithful to him, they had that white robe of light on, but when they sinned, something happened. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, it says that Adam knew that he was naked. Well, how did he lose his garment of light? Well, to answer that question, we've got to go back and we've got to look at the natural world for our answer. So for those of you that thought I was crazy earlier when I talked about the three primary colors of light, red, green, and blue, you were probably thinking of this. This is crayon. Actually, it's what... It's what um, typesetters use when they're typesetting a book that's got color in it. So when they're going to print it, they print in cyan, magenta, and yellow. So you think of them as green, uh, as blue, red, and yellow. They're not blue, red, and yellow. It's cyan, magenta, and yellow. That is primary colors of pigment. Pigment is coloring material that's in crayons and paint. And these are the colors that are used in the printing industry. So when you see a printed paper like the handout that you have there, it was cyan, magenta, and yellow that was used and combinations of those three that make up all the colors of the rainbow. Wrong way. So there's an interesting property about subtractive pigments. Remember, light adds. When you add red, green, and blue light together, you get white. When you start working with pigments, you start subtracting light. So primary colors of pigment work on subtraction. That's why they're called subtractive primaries. What does that mean? When light shines on an object that has pigment in it, part of the beam of light I'm missing a slide. Part of the beam of light loses some of its color. Those wavelengths are absorbed by the pigment that's in the object. So cyan pigment, which is on this end, absorbs red light. So when white light, which consists of red, green, and blue, pretend that that's white. I'm just showing it this way so you can see 
that the red is absorbed by the cyan, but the green and the blue are not. Likewise, yellow, if you shine white light on it, it consists of red, green, and blue. Yellow pigment absorbs blue, and the red and the green come through. And if you shine white light, red, green, and blue, on magenta pigment, the green is absorbed and the red and the blue come through. So that's why when you look at an object, if you look at an object that's white, it's because there's no pigment in it that absorbs part of the white light spectrum. So what happens to white light when all three colors of pigment are added together? So those of you that have ever painted, if you paint and you take cyan, magenta, and yellow colored paint and you put them all together in a dot on a canvas, what you end up with is that color right there, black. Black is the absence of light. That just means that all of the light has been absorbed by the pigment from the white light. So what happens to white light? Black. All the light is subtracted out. Black is the absence of light. As the three colors of white light shine on an, on an opaque object that has no pigment, all the colors are reflected back. If the white light shines on a black object, all the colors are absorbed. That's why you see black. You don't see white because it's all absorbed. We won't talk about refraction. That's another talk. We will come back to this concept in just a moment. Reflection and absorption has to do with us and our walk with Jesus. So what about Adam and Eve? Eve was instructed not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil under the penalty of death. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in that day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Notice how Satan plants the seeds of doubt in Eve's mind regarding what God had said. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Was that what God had said? Every tree of the garden you're not supposed to eat from? She knew that wasn't what he said, but there was a, a thought planted in her mind. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the, of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So what we understand is that the opposite of faith is the word doubt. 
So when Satan convinced Eve to doubt the word of God, the green of the white light of the robe of righteousness that she wore was absorbed by the pigment of the sin of doubt. So follow me very, very closely here. Green faith is absorbed by the pigment of doubt. Here's the pigment of doubt. So the green, as we saw a moment ago, right here, is absorbed by magenta. So magenta is the color of doubt. Let's see how that works. So again, white light, red, green, and blue, the character of God, his righteousness, his robe of white righteousness. And over here, the green of faith was absorbed by the pigment sin of doubt. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. Wow, is this a, a wild statement. So if red is self-sacrifice, then the opposite of self-sacrifice would be what? Selfishness, self-exaltation, self-deception, self-love. And that's what is going on here. Here we find that self is being exalted to number one. Eve no longer cared what God thought or what would happen if she disobeyed. She only thought of self. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise. So cyan pigment, this one over here, absorbs red light. Red was self-sacrifice. So the self-sacrificing love of Christ is absorbed out of the white robe of righteousness by selfishness, by self-love. So cyan pigment of selfishness subtracted away the self-sacrificing love of God. What about the blue light? Only the blue light of God's character remained. The next thing was disobedience. To God's express commands not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the last part of Genesis 3.6 says, She took the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. So, the blue light of obedience out of the white light of the robe of righteousness was absorbed by the yellow pigment of the sin of disobedience. So there you have it. The yellow absorbs the pigment of obedience found in the blue light. What was left? Nakedness. The white robe of light that was their covering was gone. Isn't that the way sin happens, though? First we doubt God, his instruction given by a parent or a teacher or some law of the land. Then we justify in our minds that it's okay. We exalt self. And then we go ahead and do it. We disobey. 
That's what happens. So we use these principles in our homeschool with our girls to show them what, whenever they disobeyed mommy or daddy, they were causing the white robe of Christ's righteousness to be gone out of their lives because it was being absorbed by the sin, the doubt, the selfishness, and the disobedience of the sins, of the pigment of sin. And we're going to see how this works here in a little bit with an experiment. So there you have all three of them. Pigment of self took away self-sacrificing love. Pigment of doubt took away faith. Pigment of disobedience took away obedience. And what they were left with was a despicable state of nakedness, doubting, self-centered, and disobedient. Sounds like people today. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves aprons. Well, our ancestors were the first to try to make things right on their own. And that is never acceptable to God. So unto Adam, also unto his wife, God made coats of skins and he clothed them. But God in his mercy told Adam and Eve that the consequence of their sin would be separation from him. He took off their garments, their fig leaves that they'd made, and he made them garments of skins. Now I have to think in my mind here that Jesus, who was the one that was walking with them in the garden, had Adam kill that first animal. I don't think Jesus did that. I think Jesus had Adam kill that first animal because that would have been such a profound statement to him of the cost of sin. Wages of sin is death. So the lost state of man disqualified from fellowship with God because of sin. Here's where we have a problem. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We all are as an unclean thing and all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. So that's the way we are today. We are clothed in the filthy garments of sin, forbidden from the garden of bliss, cast out from God's presence. And is this to be our destiny? What is the consequence of losing the light of the robe of righteousness? Christ's Object Lesson, page 316 says, all these expect to be saved by Christ's death while they refuse to live his life of self-sacrificing love. Well, it to refuse to live his self-sacrificing life. They extol the riches of free grace and attempt to cover themselves with an appearance of righteousness, hoping to screen their defects of character, but their efforts will be of no avail in the day of God. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and the, all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the brightness of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. With the spirit of his mouth, I should say. And shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 So why will the wicked be consumed by the brightness of God? Ellen White tells us in Desire of Ages, page 107, to sin wherever found our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12.29 And all who submit to his power, the Spirit of God, will consume sin. But if men 
cling to sin, they become identified with it, and then the glory of God, which destroys sin, must do what? Destroy them. So the ultimate end of the wicked is that they're going to be burned up, and that's not what God's will is. God doesn't want anyone to perish. The problem has to do with us. Now I have a little experiment that's up here, and I'm going to have a volunteer come up. I probably need an adult. I would take a child, but I'm afraid a child's going to get burned. So do I have a volunteer, an adult? This is my experiment. We have two things up here. They've been underneath this lamp, and this lamp is hot. So we have two objects. What color are those objects? Black and clear, okay. One is a piece of black tile. Which one do you think is going to be hot? The black. You want to touch them? I would encourage you to do it really quickly. It's hot. Black is hot, right? Okay, well, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. And that's the problem. When we have the black sin of pigment in our lives, when Jesus comes back with all of his energy, we'll absorb that energy because of the sin that's in our lives and we'll be burned up by the brightness of his coming. It isn't his will. The problem is the sin. When we have sin in our lives, that sin is what destroys us. Isaiah 33, 14 and 15 says, Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burning? That's Jesus. His energy is devouring fire to sin. And we can't live in his presence if we have sin in our lives. He that walks righteously and speaks uprightly, that's the key. Since our God is a consuming fire and possesses infinite energy, we must reflect his character perfectly back to him. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with a robe of righteousness. God wants to put the white robe of his righteousness back on us. So how does he do this? I hate this painting. I don't know who painted this painting. This is theological nonsense. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He that covers his sins shall not proffer, but whoso confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. This is a powerful scripture. Zechariah chapter 3, 3 and 4. Joshua, the high priest, was clothed with filthy garments, and he stood before the angel. Now, if there's anybody that was going to be good, it was the high priest, right? No, he was clothed in filthy garments. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, take away the filthy garments from him. So what happens first? Filthy garments goes away first. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. So we have to have a change of raiment. 
He that overcomes, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels, Revelation 3, 5. Out of Youth Instructor, August 8, I'm sorry, August 11, 1886, Ellen White writes this, If you are to sit at at Christ's table and feast on the provisions that he has furnished at the marriage supper of the Lamb, you must have a special garment called the wedding garment, which is the white robe of Christ's righteousness. So we must regain that white robe of righteousness. How do we get the white robe of righteousness back? It only comes through the character of Jesus. He was the second Adam. He gained victory where Adam and Eve were defeated. So let's see how this works in the life of Jesus. Where Adam and Eve doubted, Jesus trusted. He gained back the green of light through faith and trust in God. Notice this quote. Amid the awful darkness, apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. In those dreadful hours, he had relied upon the evidence of his Father's acceptance heretofore given him. He was acquainted with the character of his Father. He understood his justice, his mercy, and his great love. By what? By faith, he rested in him whom it had ever been his joy to obey. And as in submission he committed himself to God, the sense of the loss of his father's favor was withdrawn. By what? By faith, Christ was victor. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith, what? What's that next word? Of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say faith in Jesus Christ, although we need to have that. It's the faith of Christ that we need to have put to our credit. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So Jesus restores to mankind the green light of faith. What about the red light? Matthew 26, 28, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Paul tells us in Colossians 1, 14, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. So where Adam and Eve exalted self, Jesus died to self. This is how the red light was restored through death to self, his self-sacrificing love. This quote here, Desire of Ages 755, really covers it all. The spotless Son of God hung upon the cross, his flesh lacerated with stripes, those hands so often reached out in blessing, nailed to the wooden bars, those feet so tireless on ministries of love, spiked to the tree, that royal head pierced by a crown of thorns, those quivering lips shaped to the cry of woe, and all that he endured, the blood drops that flowed from his head, his hands, and his feet, the agony that racked his frame, and the unutterable anguish that filled his soul at the hiding of his father's face, speaks to each child of humanity, declaring, it is for thee that the Son of God consents to bear this burden of guilt. For thee he spoils the domain of death and opens the gates of paradise. He offers himself 
upon the cross as a sacrifice, and this from love to thee. He, the sin-bearer, endures the wrath of divine judgment, and for thy sake becomes sin itself. Remember that. We're going to come back to that. So that is the epitome of self-sacrificing love. So the red light was restored by Jesus' self-sacrificing love. What about the blue light? Jesus said, Psalms 40, verse 8, David speaking prophetically about him, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Jesus says, I have kept my Father's commandments, John 15, 10. So where Adam and Eve disobeyed, Jesus obeyed unto death. This is how the blue light of obedience was restored. Christ was obedient to every requirement of the law. When he was on earth, he said to his disciples, I have kept my Father's commandments. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, how? Unto death, even the death of the cross. So the blue light that was lost through disobedience was restored by Christ's obedience. So here we see the light fully restored. Christ now victorious is again clothed with, white, with the white robe of righteousness. So why do I say again clothed with the white robe of righteousness? When Jesus took the sin of the world on himself, the light of God's glory was absorbed by the pigment of sin. So he became dark. The white robe was gone because of sin. Am I crazy? Look at this statement. Desire of Ages, page 756. In silence the beholders watched for the end of the fearful scene. The sun shone forth, but the cross was still what? Enveloped in darkness. Everything was dark around the Son of Man. Suddenly the gloom lifted from the cross, and in clear trumpet-like tones that seemed to resound throughout creation, Jesus cried, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. A light encircled the cross, and the face of the Savior shone with a glory like the sun. He then bowed his head upon his breast, and he died. So when he did it all, when his faith, his self-sacrificing love, and his obedience was all recombined at Calvary, the light came back. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men under condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men under justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the right obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So Jesus now offers us his white robe of righteousness. I'm going to read through this really quick. Heavenly Places, page 51. It would be a terrible thing to stand before God clothed in sinful garments, 
with his eyes reading every secret of our lives, but through the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice, we may stand before God pure and spotless, our sins atoned for and pardoned. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins and, I'm sorry, to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The redeemed sinner clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness may stand in the presence of a sin-hating God made perfect by the merits of the Savior. Faith is the condition upon which God has seen fit to promise pardon to sinners. Faith can lay hold on the merits of Christ, the remedy provided for sin. Faith can present Christ's perfect obedience instead of the sinner's transgression and defection. So by faith, we can now have Christ's white robe of righteousness. By faith, he can bring to God, the sinner, can bring to God the merits of Christ, and the Lord places the obedience of his Son to the sinner's account. God's right, Christ's righteousness is accepted in place of man's failure. And God receives, pardons, justifies the repentant, believing soul, treats him as though he were righteousness, he were righteous, and loves him as he loves his son. This is how faith is accounted to righteousness. So while we are all given a little measure of faith, there are two things that are lacking in our lives. We may have a measure of faith, a knowledge of the theory of truth, but unless self dies, unless we live Christ's life of what? Obedience, our profession is worthless. Avenus Review, Avent Review and Sabbath Herald, August 2, 1906. So what is interesting from this quote is that even though every person is given a measure of faith, they are lacking the other two essential character traits of white light, self-sacrificing love and obedience. Man is selfish and disobedient by nature. Self-sacrificing love and obedience are two character traits essential to have a victorious Christian life. These are the characteristics that must be supplied by God. One Selective Messages 366. But while God can be just and yet justify the sinner through the merits of Christ, no man can cover his soul with the garments of Christ's righteousness while practicing known sins or neglecting known duties. God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. And in order for man to retain justification, there must be continual obedience through active living faith that works by love and purifies the soul. So here we see that we must surrender our whole heart to Jesus and our faith in him must result in obedience to all that he asks us to do. Revelation 19.8 says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Christ's Object Lessons, page 312. In practical terms, we may ask, what does it mean to put on the robe of Christ's righteousness? By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. When we submit ourselves to Christ, notice the five steps. The heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garments of his righteousness. John the Revelator says in Revelation 3.5, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father. 
So Paul tells us to walk as children of light, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Transformation of characters wrought through the operation of the Holy Spirit, which works upon the human agent, implanting in him according to his desire and consent. To have it done, a new nature, the image of God is restored to the soul, and day by day he strengthened and he renewed by grace, and is enabled more and more perfectly to what? Reflect the character of Christ in righteousness and true holiness. Review and Herald, September 17, 1895. In July 10, 1894, Review and Herald, it says, All who are teachable, all who are humble, all who serve from love are as mirrors that are being polished to reflect more perfectly the divine image. Their souls are becoming purified. Their ideas are becoming broader and their characters are being transformed after the divine similitude. Proverbs 4.18 says, But the path of the just is as the shining light that shines more and more unto the perfect day. This is my favorite spirit of prophecy quote out of everything she ever wrote. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. And when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his children, he will come to claim them as his own. Christ Object Lessons, page 69. So why is he waiting for the white robe of righteousness to be on his children? Why is he waiting for us to reflect his glory? Well, the one thing that we haven't talked about this is a mirror. We just read a quote about we need to be polished like a mirror. One of the things we haven't talked about in light, this is the last thing that I'll share. Those of you that are familiar with the way a laser works, laser light, pretty bright, that is the most intense energy that man knows of today is a laser, coherent light. And lasers are so powerful that they'll burn through steel, they'll even burn through diamonds, the hardest substance known to man. But do you see this little thing I'm holding in my hand? The most powerful laser on planet Earth will bounce right off of a laser. And there it is up on the ceiling. Bounces right off of a, of a mirror. The most powerful, intense light that we know of. Now we know that Christ's righteousness is far, far more powerful than the laser. Bounces right off of us when we reflect his character back to him. And that's the reason why God wants us to have the robe of righteousness is so that we reflect his character, so that we can live with him, so that we will not be consumed by the brightness of his coming when he returns. And we're going to be talking more about that tomorrow when we talk about sound. We'll be talking about it again on Friday when we talk about the gospel and the stars. Did we have any questions at all? I can take maybe one or two questions. We're really out of time. We're out of time. Father in heaven, how glorious you are in your character, self-sacrificing, obedient, faithful, that robe of righteousness, that white robe that you possess, that you want us to have that we can have.
by faith because Jesus did it for us. I pray that you will help each and every one of us to reach out in faith and take that white robe of righteousness and allow you through the indwelling of your spirit to work out self-sacrificing love for us and obedience to your love. May that be our presence. Today is our prayer in Jesus' name. God bless you all. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.